0: Hello, my name is Leszek Jaroszewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaroszewski. Welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. Our guest today is a Chinese professor in jurisprudence at the University of Sydney and the author of, among others, Polish constitutional crisis and a brand new pandemic of populists by Cambridge University Press. Wojciech Sadurski, welcome to the podcast. Hello and uh, thank you for having me. Wojciech we um, can you start with the definition? Because many people are confused about the populism. Some think it's just a label that uh, is assigned to the movements or a political party that uh, the mainstream doesn't like. Uh, some uh, claim that, uh, well, all po- po- politics is populist uh, or at least democratic popul- po- politics is populist. So let us let us be clear. What is populism, or perhaps rather populisms, and how sure. it differs from the popular politics?
1: Sure, it's a, it's a very good question, and indeed many people simply refuse to use this word, claiming that it is both very ambiguous and also that it is uh, very opinionated and uh, unfairly dismissive of the movements it describes. Some people even say that if we don't like a particular movement, we say that it is populist, if we like it, we say it's popular. So I, 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 I'm trying to escape this problem by adopting an unashamedly institutional approach. Maybe because that's my professional deformation. I'm a constitutional scholar more than anyone else or more than anything else, I should say. And uh, therefore, I'm much more interested in institutions and especially in constitutional uh, approaches than in the loose talk, in in, uh, narratives or discourses. Uh, I know that the dominant approach to populism in current or contemporary scholarship is related to the discourses preferred by populists, but I think it's an unstable and, and indeterminate approach. So what I consider populism, and especially populism in power, maybe I should, I should add Leshku, that I'm much more interested in populisms in rule, right. those that achieve power, rather than the movement which only fight or struggle to achieve power. So, for me, these movements or these states are those which, on the one hand, cherish and cultivate their democratic electoral pedigree. That is, they originate from reasonably incontestable elections which are free and largely fair, at least when they come to power in the first place. So that is very important. And that's, if you like, a populist aspect of it, because in this they share aspirations and actions of every democratic government or democratic party. On the other hand, however, and that is what distinguishes them from what we we may call consolidated or, or genuine democracies, is that, Once in power, they undermine up to the point of abolishing a real separation of powers. So they aim at full concentration of power in the hands of usually one man. Usually I'm using a gendered word because today these are almost without exception men. Uh, And secondly, they try to manipulate law. To suit their day-to-day political requirements, so they do not respect the idea of rule of law as something which, at least to some extent, constrains the politics. So, on the one, so, so I'm I'm thinking of populist governments or populist parties or populist rules as being sort of hybrid uh, animals. On the one hand, they on on the one hand they are no longer full democracies. Uh, On the other hand, uh, and that's what distinguishes them from traditional autocracies or despotisms, they care about societal support because their legitimacy derives from the elections.
0: I'm wondering to what extent do you think that putting in one category, well, parties, movements or governments, so different in many aspects, let's say, or leaders of you know, Narendra Modi on one hand, the Brexiteers on the other hand, Kaczynski, Orban, Duterte and well, I think many people would assign also the term populist to Podemos and Syriza uh, and of course Marine Le Pen. Um, Will, there, the, there is the whole litany, perhaps I AFD as well. I'm wondering, do you think that populism is not too wide a term to describe so many different movements perhaps it should be there should be some different kinds of populism i don't know national populism or uh left leaning or i mean do do you think that this is not too broad a term that it actually means something do you think it's it's useful in description of of political parties political leaders and their behavior well if you if you go over the list of leaders
1: or movements which you have just uh married Uh, you realize that, in fact, they have more in common than differences. But let me be clear, I do not include in my study so-called left-wing populists, say Syriza or Podemos, because they indeed have some fundamental differing features. And yes, many people consider them to be populist. Well, I do not, because apart from the institutional factors which I had mentioned, you know i cannot be completely myopic to the fact there are certain ideological factors which are typical of of uh, populisms and that is why i'm really thinking only about right wing popul- populisms those populisms which are based on certain exclusionary philosophy on anti pluralism of excluding the others of discriminatory legalism, as some people say, that is using the law against its enemies. Uh, And its enemies are mainly external enemies, such as refugees or would-be immigrants, and often internal internal others, quote-unquote, well, such as ethnic minorities, religious minorities, non-religious minorities or minorities in terms of sexual orientation. So um, this uh, I I have a chapter in my book about uh, which is simply called Paranoia, uh, which Hmm. more or less tries to uh, characterize what is common in these founding theories of of populism. And that almost without exception, they are based on certain paranoia, conspiracy theories, irrationalism, etc. But let me just make uh, one more point, and that is that one of the one of the main themes in my thinking about populism is that we really cannot speak about one populism; that we can talk about populisms with uh, an S at the end, in, in plural, in other words. Uh, so that uh, contemporary populisms differ depending upon societal sources for their popularity. And there are completely, well, completely, there are widely uh, different sources, say, for popularity of Donald Trump in the United States or uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, or on the other hand, uh, Kaczynski and Trump Respectively in Poland and Hungary. So, these different sources, if you like, different factors which trigger popularity and growth of different populist leaders uh, create or generate different types of populism. For example, uh, you mentioned in your uh, question Brexit or Brexiteers. Yes, in conventional speech, Brexit was populist, in the sense that it used all sorts of typically paranoiac uh, type of uh, rhetoric against immigrants, against the European Union. Okay? But, but, but they are not populist in my vocabulary, because they do not, uh, the, the, the leaders of uh, Brexit, pro-Brexit movement do not strike me as being in any way against the separation of powers or the rule of law or the uh, checks and balances, those institutional slash constitutional features which are characteristic of contemporary democracies. So for me, a constitutional lawyer, they are not Brexiteers. If anything, if anything, it is the other way around. I mean, one of the important sources of antipathy of many People in the UK against European Union, and some of them also against the Council of Europe, that is European Court of Human Rights, is that they somehow distort traditionally English or British or then UK uh, institutional structures, that it is over bureaucratic, that it reduces the powers of democratically elected government and we know that british uh british democracy is consolidated and 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 strong despite its peculiarities such as the absence of of written constitution etc so so for me brexit is really not a good example of populists. they are they are called populists for the reasons which i mentioned because of the of certain crazy according to me and many other people logic of opposing the european union but they are not populist in terms of undermining and distorting democracy of their state right i, I think
0: it's an important distinction and uh, how i understand your your point is that you can judge the true populist after they're gaining power so you can tell how they behave towards the institutions and you have actually the chapter, the second chapter of your book is called The War on Institutions. You're quoting Scott Galloway, who who, who writes uh, that pure democracy is populism. But you also make important distinctions. So that's um, mostly, I mean, with some exceptions like Chavez, the, the populists are subverting the institutions. They are not uh, completely, well, destroying them in a kind of Leninist sense. They, they 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 subvert them. Can you develop on this because I think it's an extremely important point because it's it's hard to kind of because this um attack on democracy, the true democracy in the way that is uh, described by, for example, by Urbinati is is it's way harder to' uh, uh, it's much more kind of intelligent, I would say uh made by populists because it's made in the name of democracy but we can say that is the direct attack on democracy understood as also as a set of institutions not just the uh voting at the the voting booth so can you tell us more about the about this war on institutions that is made by populists and how um and how to react to it because there are some also you also make this i think it's very fair you also make uh, the point that sometimes the very core of argument, for example, of uh, checks and balances which are slowing down the processes and you know veto gates and so on, that this is actually some truth to that, but the populist answer is is, is wrong. So can you please develop on this on this point?
1: Yes, sure. Uh, so I liked very much this uh, this uh, quote from Scott Galloway, which I include uh, at the opening of my institutional chapter of the book, uh, where he says that insti- I mean, I'm now paraphrasing. Him, I don't have the direct quote in front of me. But the basic point is that the institutions sort of are meant to slow down the immediate translation of majority will into the binding law. Uh, for example, some, someone has an idea about limiting or expanding the uh, right to abortion or about some environmental measures or about changing the structure of the judiciary. Uh, and he says institutions are in order to allow us to have a second thought, you know, to calm down, to deliberate, to discuss. Maybe it's not such a great idea. What are the opposing views, et cetera? And this is this what may be called temporal aspect, is something that populists hate. If they manage to convince, often, with irrational arguments or with propaganda, indo- indoctrination, sometimes even intimidation and threat. Uh, the general public opinion to some ideas, they want to see it overnight, so to speak, enforceable as law. And in that sense, they are anti-institutional because the very point of institutions is to create certain structured deliberation and to establish all sorts of obstacles between someone having an idea and, on the other hand, enacting it as a law or national policy. So in that sense, they are anti-institutional. However, they are also institutionalists. They are pro-institutional in the fact that they do not abolish, formally speaking, the existing institutions. So when you compare today's Poland, for example, today's institutional structure in Poland, in the year 2022, with that of the early 2015, which is before the double election in Poland, which brought populists back to power, if you you look at it from purely formal point of view, the changes are minimal, are very small. They are certainly smaller than, say, in Hungary. More or less the same institutions exist and their composition, sometimes the mode of election, etc., seem to be exactly the same. Sometimes there are some changes. National Council of Judiciary has undergone changes from the point of view of its uh, election, of the election of its members. But it's an exception rather than, uh, than a rule. However, everything has changed. I mean, these are completely different institutions. They exist but they have been fully captured by the uh, uh, ruling party. And, And the capture is not just limited to placing your own people into the existing institution, sort of removing the incumbents and bringing your own personnel. That happens all over the world, also in democracies. I mean, there are several thousands of positions in the federal government of the United States which are subject to filling by a new president, new administration, and that's not considered to be particularly abhorrent uh, to the principles of democracy. However, in Poland, what has happened, and that has also happened in in Hungary, to a large extent in India, to a somewhat smaller extent in uh, the Philippines, and to a great extent under Chavez in Venezuela, is that these institutions have been, quote unquote, hollowed out. Mm -hmm. So in the constitutional scholarship, there is this concept of hollowing out of the institutions, which is, of course, just a metaphor. And like any metaphor, it's quite vague and needs to be specified. And the specific shapes of this hollowing out vary from country to country. And I'm trying to provide some some type of taxonomy of the most typical and at the same time pernicious manners of hollowing out institutions inherited from their predecessors by populists. So one of them would be, for example, simple erosion of an institution. You maintain an institution but deprive it of budget and deprive it of the of the uh, powers that it had before. That's the case, say, of human rights organizations, such as Human Rights Commission in the Philippines or Ombudsman offices in plural uh, in Hungary. Then another form. So basically the institution exists, but it lacks resources and lacks powers to do what it was supposed to do. Then you may create new institutions which sort of are parallel to the existing institutions and which overshadow uh, the former one. So you still have the, a constitutional institution mm-hmm. uh, which had been inherited from the previous regime, but you also have a new institution which de facto uh, overtakes the former one. Examples can be the media councils in uh, in uh, Poland or the budget and financial Sort of supervision uh, institutions in Hungary then you may have a simple capture which basically means that you put new people in in the old offices like in constitutional tribunal in Poland and slowly but surely if you if you manage to get majority of your own people in the new institution you may leave it alone because you know that they will do what you the ruler want them to do and we have all too many examples instances of subserv- subservience in Poland. and you know you may you may have different other methods and ways you might you may maintain the institutions but change their internal structure so from the outside it is still the same institution but now it is sort of it looks like it is differently composed differently structured but this different structure completely changes its character. So take the Supreme Court of Poland. You know, it, it used to have, I think, five chambers based on different disciplines. You reduce those other chambers, but add two new ones, which are now selected in a completely different way. And these two new chambers become sort of determinative of the political function uh, of the court so that it can make sure, for example, that the most strategically sensitive decisions, for instance, about correctness of the elections, will be made by a new chamber which is now fully, you know, can be, can be relied upon by the new r- ruler. So I don't want now to continue because, you know, we are now moving into more specific, perhaps, details but again if you look at the broad picture you realize that there are all sorts of ways of distorting manipulating with changing the existing institutions so that they remain but they play a role not just different from that which was its original raison d'être, but often the opposite so so let me just say my my, my favorite example and the most striking would be constitutional courts both in Poland and Hungary. Constitutional courts, like any constitutional supreme courts, had been always and properly considered to be, as we call it, counter-majoritarian institutions. That is, they are deliberately there in order to restrain the majority will to make sure that it is consistent with the constitution. But the way they have been used by populists in these two countries is just the opposite rather than being a majoritarian institution, a sort of irritant, sorry, rather than being counter-majoritarian institution, a sort of irritant to the current legislative majority and the executive, they become willful and enthusiastic helpers to the government and to the legislative majority. So that often, if the government doesn't want to do something, for example, because it will be costly internationally, say, in the European Union, or costly nationally, say, among the uh, public opinion, and yet they feel that they, are, they, they, they want to achieve certain changes, they delegate this unpleasant task to constitutional court, which is not accountable before the general public, so they can do it. Perhaps the best example of that would be the way in which abortion law in Poland has been completely changed by constitutional court because the legislative, that is the 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 government, uh, for all practical purposes, the government didn't want to do it, expecting and fearing strong protests in the street. On the other hand, it felt that the pressure from the Catholic Church is so strong that it has to be changed. So it sort of delegated it to the Constitutional Court. In this way, Constitutional Court is a helper (laughs) rather than a, a restraint upon the uh,
0: the executive uh, i think it's a very important point w- which we just made and i'm wondering to what extent do you think that the problem with defending the institutions is on the one hand that well very often they are relatively new and not well established in the i think kind of mindsets of the of the population especially uh, when it comes to the uh well democracies like 30 year old democracies like in poland and in the region But on the other hand, they are certainly the countries which are brand new democracies and they maintain the institutions uh, and, well, in some cases, as in the US, of course, the institutions defend themselves, but they are in many ways uh, taking over, uh, even if we can say that according to the rules, uh, I think in in many aspects uh, against the spirit, like we've seen recently with the conservative majority in the a constitutional tribunal in the United States. It will be interesting to actually, if you if you can mention that. But I, I wanted to ask you more more kind of general question. Do you think that simply because we speak of liberal democracy, people are kind of uh, the 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 populations they understand democracy as the the right to vote and and choose whatever you want. And it's much harder to make an argument to defend the liberal institutions. And even by the fact that we are speaking of liberal democracy there is a possibility, at least theoretically, that there are different kinds of democracy, like sovereign democracy, we had the popular democracy. And I'm wondering how do you think that this this um, approach to, to democracy, that there are different kinds uh, and uh, perhaps this, this is the problem not with democracy, but with liberalism, uh, which people don't like uh, many often, especially it constrains do you think that there is that perhaps we we got this definition wrong and we should speak about more coherently about democracy as such? And if you are destroying the institutions, this is basically no democracy, as for example in Hungary. Or it is very hard to make an argument that in Poland do we have democracy or we don't have democracy? We speak of hybrid regimes. How do you how do you view this 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 important issue?
1: Well, I read it in the following way. Of course, we may have different conceptions of democracy. That is conceptions which identify different aspects of the rule by the people. This is what democracy is, that people, the population, somehow have authorship, have ownership in the decision-making so that they can affect who will be their government for the next reasonably short period, say four or five years, and also what type of programs will be given effect to in those next years. So this is, I mean, without that, you have no democracy. Absolutely. However, even if, as I would endorse, we limit our interest, our focus on democracy to these issues, that is to the actual influence and impact of the population upon who rules them, then we imme- immediately see that this is not just about an electoral act, a voting act. It is, of course, the culmination. It is, if you like, the main symbolic and also effective step in which this rule of the people is being, or by the people, is being actualized. But in order for that to have any meaning at all, there have to be a number of conditions which render this act of voting meaningful and real. So that, for example, if you do not have freedom of press, uh, you cannot hope that the electorate electorate will be well informed about the options which they have on the table. So, you know, they may vote, but they vote in an irrational way because any decision without the information is not a proper decision you must have freedom of associations and in particular freedom of political parties because without that obviously uh, some ideological political options will not be able to convey their messages to the general population you must have freedom of assembly because uh, public rallies meetings demonstrations etc are as we know it from practice, a necessary condition of democracy in, in today's world. And you know, when you when you put all this, you 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 have to have freedom of religion, because some of the major issues which are being decided in the vote of the population are about relationship between state and religion, or state and churches. So without freedom of religion, these type of formation of will will not be fully rational and free. So once we realize that, then we'll see that there is much more to the uh, elections than, than, than only a right to vote. You may have a right to vote, but you have no choice. Okay? You may have a right to vote, but you have no knowledge. You may have a right to know to vote because you cannot associate with other people who, who think like you. And each of these deficits detracts from the sense and value of your right to vote. So in that sense, I believe that democracy is a much more more aggregate, much broader concept than just about the vote. It's also what happens before the vote, and of course what happens after the vote. Because if you realize that your elected representatives uh, have lied to you, or deceive you, uh, or are unwilling or unable to practice their promises, well, you must have some ways of sanctioning them, even during the term of office. And so both before and after, there are many, many conditions which must be met. And these are the conditions which go into this liberal ingredient of liberal democracy. They are about the liberties and rights which render voting meaningful. So I'm not using democracy in a particularly broad sense. I'm trying to use it in the most minimal sense possible, accepting perfectly well that there are many other very important ideals and values in addition to democracy. I'm in favor of a degree of socioeconomic equality, but I'm not sure that equality as such, unless, it goes be- unless its absence goes below a certain level, is part of democracy. I'm in favor of peace, but I'm not 100% sure that peace necessarily should go into a definition of democracy. So there may be many other ideas, and yet we cannot say, well, we, you may have liberal democracy and you may have illiberal democracy. Because illiberal democracy, if it's illiberalism, affects adversely those freedoms which are instrumental to elections, ceases being democracy.
0: and for for the very end, we we just touched upon some points that you make, and many of them are extremely crucial, but we, we don't have time to 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 dwell into, we just uh, can recommend for people to um, to buy the book as in themselves it's already available epidemic uh, of Populists by cambridge university press it's it's really worth it's really worth reading and if you want to understand the, the processes the deeper reasons for for existence of populism and and and, and the causes but i wanted to to to, to end with do you, do you feel that there is like one way or certain different ways in which uh, democracy can respond, in which the politicians, the the but also commentators, the uh, analysts, uh, is it any way to try to immunize democracy to populism, or should we try to live with it and and you know defend the institutions, or do you think that there are some ways in which we, we can perhaps incorporate some of the issues that are raised, some of the fears? Uh, immigration is a big issue, especially in the Western democracies, uh, we, we, which have a populism problem. Do you think there are ways to respond with? Because I think that like pure rejection might not work in the in the long term. Do you think that there are ways to also perhaps dismantle populism by uh, in certain ways? I think even Krastev made comparison to 1960s when there was like from the left a big attack on on democracy, on democratic institutions, and some of the issues were incorporated into the, into the system and this, this leftist critique of, uh, of democracy was in many ways weakened or, or incorporated. Do you think that there are some answers that could be uh, applied to, the, to this right wing populism that you are describing?
1: So first of all, there is no one size fits all. And there is no answer which fits all populism precisely because the sources of populism are different. In the countries where the sources of populism are mainly about, say, globalization, or mainly about economic status anxiety, then you have different uh, responses necessary uh, than in countries where the sources of populism are mainly about the nostalgia to the past societal system, to past authorities, to religion, and so on. And, you know, so, so you must have first a good account, a good diagnosis of what triggered populism or its popularity, rather, in a given country. And only then will you be able to give proper answer. Now, I think that you have identified a correct strategy that we anti-populists, liberal Democrats, Uh, should adopt, that is, we should think as badly as possible about populist leaders, but with the greatest respect to populist voters. We shouldn't neglect them, we shouldn't offend and insult them. Uh, They, Even though the answers given by populists are wrong, the questions asked by their voters are real and we need to look at them. However, one has to be very careful. That is, on the one hand, yes, we need to think what are the reasons for popularity of populism in a particular country and how can we provide better answers than our populist opponents, right? How can we, for example, make sure that those people in post-communist countries, for example, who feel that they are net losers of the transition, how they can be uh, satisfied, compensated for their losses, which may be real, which may be imaginary. But even if they are imaginary, they are, in a sense, real because they are part of public conscience. But we must be very careful about not crossing certain lines about not simply absorbing populist policies into our programs, because then, in a sense, you know, the the medicine may be worse than the disease. Uh, When Mark Rutte in the Netherlands adopted uh, Wilder's uh, anti-immigration policies, uh, he certainly saved his political skin and got re-elected, but... Is it the advantage for the cause of humanity and democracy in a country like the Netherlands? I'm not quite sure. So we should look at the sources of frustrations, but try to give answers which are not exclusionary, which are not based on hatred, and which do not simply reproduce all those various stereotypes and prejudices that populists use to strengthen their popularity. In other words, we shouldn't be like them.
0: I think it's it's, it's very important points to to make and a good good note to to end our podcast. Uh, Wojciech Sadowski, thank you so much, Wojtek, for for being with us and very thank you very comments. much, Leszko. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, please bear in mind that. Uh, pandemic of populism is out um, of populism is out and uh it's, it's it's really really worth reading i had this chance to read it before publication but at the moment that we speak it's already um it's already in the in the bookshops or online so uh well that's uh that's all from me to, for today and please tune in for ricardo next week and we will meet again in two weeks time thank you this was the europe pleasure to ask you. thank you goodbye You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.